Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, and I'll be hosting the channel today. And I'm delighted to say that today we'll be talking to Lamont Lindstrom, who's a professor of anthropology at the University of Tulsa. We're going to be talking about his book, Tana Times, Islanders in the World. And I, I think this book is really interesting because it's a short, clearly written accessible introduction to the country of Vanuatu and um, uh, Monty. Uh, you can tell us where Vanuatu is in just a little bit. And it's also open access, which means you can go find it, download it from University of Hawaii Press, the publisher or anywhere else. You can learn about Vanuatu or make other people learn about Vanuatu if you're a teacher who can assign books. So um, I should also say I've known uh, Lamont Lindstrom for a long time and he usually goes by Monty. So I'm going to call him Monty. He's going to call me Alex. So Monty, to, to get started, can you tell me a little bit about your biography? How, how, does, uh, how did you end up studying Vanuatu and, and get interested in, in this topic? And then finally, I know you've written other books. How did that lead up to writing this book? Well, hello, Alex, and everybody who, who might be listening. Um, uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk about this book. Um, so... I don't know how deep I need to go into my into my autobiography, but uh, a long time ago, I was a, I was a student at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and through a variety of connections and professors, I got interested in anthropology and then got interested in Pacific studies. So I got that far, and then I jumped over to the University of California, Berkeley, um, which did not have um, many professors who had worked in the Pacific, but. Um, there was one, uh, a medical anthropologist named Margaret McKenzie, and you know, when you're a graduate student, kind of searching about for a place to do research, you ask for advice, and Margaret actually suggested I try Vanuatu. Um, I'd also been a student of Roger Keesing, um, then a well-known anthropologist who had worked in the Solomon Islands, so I was uh, interested in Melanesia and um, was lucky enough to, although there were some trials and tribulations, I was lucky enough to find my way to Vanuatu at the beginning of 1978. And Roger was at Santa Cruz. He, he is, um, he's well known for being um, uh, expert on Solomon Islands. Is that right? Yeah. The Santa Cruz in those years, money was flusher than it ended up, um, had a Center for Pacific Island Studies, and they had three or four scholars who um, focused on the Pacific, and Kiesing was one of them. Um, he left my second year um, at Santa Cruz, which is one of the reasons I transferred up to Berkeley. Um, he was uh, heading for bigger and better things. He ended up as, uh, I think, co-director, co-chair of the department at the Research School of Pacific Studies at Australian National University, where he was kind of babysitting um, Derek Freeman for, for a bit, and then moved on to um, Canada, uh, where he... Um, died suddenly on the dance floor, I understand it. And oh, my Roger, goodness. You know, he, he, he was a interesting character, um, charismatic in his own way, and but um, very devoted to um, the Kwayo of Maleta Island and the Solomons. So as a kind of anthropological mentor or a model, he was, uh, he was hard to beat. And just for people um, who aren't familiar, this is, uh, this is, I'm a Gen Xer and I think you're a baby boomer. So you're talking about the 70s? 1971 to 73 at Santa Cruz and then 73 onwards at Berkeley. Yeah, long time ago. And, and so then when you went to Vanuatu for the first time, that must have been right around the independence period. It was right before. It was still the New Hebrides. Nobody had invented the name Vanuatu. And... Um, Kiesing helped me. I went to ANU to what I thought I would hang out there for a couple of months and do library research, but I got stuck um, because my application was blocked for six or seven months by 
the British and or the French who weren't too happy to have uh, American anthropology students kind of rooting around in the outer islands in those years. Um, but as soon as uh, things moved a little further on towards independence, um, I was allowed to go to Vila. I still wasn't allowed to go down to Tana. Uh, the New Hebrides and Vanuatu today is a chain of 80-something islands, 12 big ones, uh, over about 1,000 miles. So the capital town is Port Vila, which is on the island of Evate. And I wanted to go about 120 miles south to Tana Island. Um, and I did some you know, wandering, wandering around preliminary research uh, in Port Vila town. And when the British uh, withdrew their district agent, their colonial governor basically of Tana and replaced him with a local man, I kept um, writing letters back then. And, and the local guy said, sure, no problem, just come. So after about a month and a half in Vila, I finally managed to get down to Tana, I, I believe in April of 78. And I stayed there through December 79. And so for really your whole career, that's been your field side. You haven't done sort of a second field project or gone somewhere else. You really have been connected to that island and that community for yeah, uh, I'm either 40, just, 40 years or something. It's just a, a little more than 40. I'm either lazy or single-minded. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of a great place. And, you know, if you read the book, you'll see that more and more tourists are finding out about Tana and, you know, spending some time there. Uh, people are wonderful. Um, everybody, well, not everybody, but um, Tani's men uh, gather every evening for a kava hour, kava hour um, drinking um, infusions of the traditional Pacific drug, drug substance, kava. Um, it's very friendly. And, and, um, and over the years, I've found um, a series of um, projects, reasons to get back to Tana. Um, the lazy part is um, I, you know, did what anthropologists were supposed to do back in back in my day, which is I learned um, the, the local language. Tana's got, depending on how you define a dialect, it's got five or six separate languages and they're, you know, as different as French and Spanish might be. So um, it took me a while. You know, I was proud of myself to, to learn one of the languages. And uh, since I... You know, I can still speak that. I keep going back to uh, kind of the same place. I figured if uh, the other pattern and the anthropologist of my era, the baby boomer anthropologist, um, was that you should do comparative research and you should develop a second field site and that would make you a better anthropologist. And it might well do so. But um, aside from a little bit of work in Papua New Guinea, when I was posted at the University of Papua New Guinea, um, I have kept going back again and again to Tana, um, which has uh, got many benefits and, uh, you know, maybe it's limitations too, but um, I'm hoping to go back again in future if I can. And so people who are not anthropologists like us, who know a, a little bit about Vanuatu, or in your case, a lot, uh, Tana has a reputation um, amongst people for being like an exotic destination. There was a reality TV show what, what do people who are not sort of Pacific expert types or Pacific Islanders, what is sort of the general view that of Vanuatu and Tana in the popular culture? Were you writing against that at all when you wrote your book? Yeah, I mean, the gross popular view is uh, these are Pacific Islanders in Melanesia um, and um, former cannibals. The one uh, Tana is also famous um, for a local social movement called the John Frum movement, which erupted before and during and then after the Pacific War, and it's still going. It's still going. Um, so um, many, you know, it's it's got many claims to fame, at least anthropologically. Um, just regular non-anthropological people who might be a little bit informed um, could know the place because it's got a an active uh, Stromboli-type volcano is a huge cone of ash, uh, which uh, blows lava bombs up into the air every five to ten minutes. It was first described, at least um, for Europeans, by uh, James Cook, by Captain James Cook in 1774. Um, and it's that volcano which mostly is attracting tourists um, to come to Tana. But the uh, the local entrepreneurs, the you know everybody in the tourist business nowadays, uh, they try to sell the volcano, 
but they also sell um, wood and funnel to uh, uh, what people call custom or tradition. So you could come to Tana and you could see traditional dancing and tra traditional exchange ceremonies and pig killings. Um, and then thirdly, they sell cargo cult or this, this strung from social movement. You can come to Tana and um, touristically anyway, um, participate in, you know, strange Islander um, ritual practice. So probably those three things uh, are the main um, uh, sorts of celebrity that, that this island has. So when it came time for you to write this book, you, you'd written previous books. Why this book now? And, and can you tell me a little bit about what you were trying to do with it? This, this book is interesting because it's got an, each chapter is named after a person. So you kind of go through, I don't know, maybe the history of Tana, the culture of Tana, one person at a time? Yeah. So as I said, I'm toward the end of my career. So I'm the baby boomers about to boom out of here. Um, you know, the model, the pattern when I was a student taking anthropology courses was that at least at um, UC Berkeley, there might be three or 400 or sometimes fewer students in the room and everybody would maybe read a text and then there'd be case studies, uh, two or three or four case studies, smaller books um, that um, focused on particular human societies and cultures, cultures around the world. So that model is still in my head, and I have to confess I still use that model in my intro cultural anthropology courses. Um, I have my doubts about, you know, the future of the book. I mean, I think it will survive. I'm not sure it will survive as much as it has in classrooms, but I still ask my students to uh, buy a, a mini text, uh, you know, a, a shorter intro to cultural anthropology, and I ask them to buy three case studies. Um, at the moment, I'm teaching that course, and I'm using uh, I'm using an old book by Marjorie Wolf, House of Limb. Um, I'm using a book by the anthropologist John Barker, um, Ancestral Lines about the Maasim of Papua New Guinea. And I'm using uh, a book about Yucatecan migrants who um, moved up to Dallas, Texas. Um, so that's been my model of anthropological education. So I have written previous books on Tana, but I wrote them more for the anthropology community. This one I was really trying to write for students. And then in the back of my mind, I had that tourist market. Um, I was considering maybe some of the uh, more sophisticated hordes of tourists who find themselves to Tana in increasing numbers, you know, might like to know a little bit about that island. Um, I guess that um, a, lo a lot of people today in anthropology are thinking about making their research relevant to the communities where they've worked. Do you think this is going to be something that Tanese people might read, or do they kind of already know everything that's in it? Um, I hope so. I mean, more and more people are um, entering into um, secondary and uh, tertiary education. Uh, still not a lot, um, but there is a University of, of the South Pacific um, campus in Port Vila, and just this year, they started the University of Vanuatu. Um, I, since that book is a free download, um, I did list it in some Vanuatu Facebook sites, and I know it's been downloaded um, by people in Vanuatu because I've seen pictures from the book that people um, um, what scanned or, or saved and then uploaded themselves to, to Facebook. So. Um, yeah, you know, among the readerships, I mentioned anthropology students, I mentioned tourists, but uh, local Tanese people themselves would, you know, are, you know, a third, certainly a third audience or a third readership. And I could go back to that original or the earlier question about the structure of the book, if you want. Yeah, go for it. Um, yeah, well, you know, reading anthropology at least for anthropologists, can sometimes be enjoy enjoyable and interesting and, and can sometimes be rather dry. So one of the favorite sorts of stories that I like to read are stories about uh, people, about um, about persons. And um, there's an old book uh, edited by the Pacific historian Derek Scar called Pacific Island Portraits. I think there's two, two volumes of that. Um, and then I mentioned... Um, 
Marjorie Wolf's House of Bloom that I'm using at the moment in my class. It was written in the 60s, but it's about a Taiwanese farm family. And the, each chapter focuses on uh, on a person, basically. So that was sort of my model. Um, instead of writing a chapter on kinship and a chapter on economics and a chapter on religion and a chapter on globalization and social change, I, I begin each chapter with, with a, a person, or in a couple of cases, two people. In one case, a spirit. Uh, and tell that story, tell their life story. And then um, I try to contextualize that story with some anthropology. So all of the chapters end with a little bit of anthropological analysis and interpretation that I hope help readers make better sense of what happened to that person in his or her life. You know, as someone who's living in Honolulu, I, I can't help note that I think the spirit you mentioned is sort of the local version of Maui. And people who are not super familiar might be surprised to find that in, quote, Melanesia, there's still a, quote, Polynesian cultural influence. These, these people are Austronesian language speakers. And so some of their culture and some of their language would be familiar to people in Samoa, Tonga, even though technically, I guess, they're on the, the other line of the Melanesia-Polynesia divide that was sort of um, made by Europeans. Yeah, they're in the same um, Austronesian language family, and I forget my—I forget how to count in Hawaiian. But if I counted in uh, Nafe language, um, you'd see some reflexes with uh, you know Hawaiian counting and, and lots of other terms as well. So uh, there's a shared—they're in the same language family, and many of the kind of myth, myths and uh, mythic personages that you'll find in Polynesia, um, you'll find in Vanuatu as well. Either you know because. The islands were originally settled by Lapita uh, pottery folks who arrived on their canoes uh, 3,000 something years ago, carrying those stories, um, leaving them in Vanuatu and then take, taking them further out into the Pacific. Or um, from about 1200, um, there are a couple of waves of uh, uh, Polynesians coming back west and settling. Um, usually little offshore islands um, here and there in Vanuatu. So there are some, I think there are five Polynesian languages um, spoken in Vanuatu, along with the more Melanesian, Austronesian ones that are spoken throughout throughout the archipelago. Um, and there's uh, two of these islands, which are just offshore Tana. So there's been since maybe 1200 something, 800 years of uh, pretty close contact between Polynesian uh, drift voyagers, or maybe they weren't drifting, but they came back um, west and uh, settled uh, in Vanuatu. So who knows the origins of, yeah, it's Maui. Um, Maui tiki tiki. Um, in Tana, they call them Machichiki. But uh, many of the same stories that people in Hawaii might recognize are told on Tana as well. So he's he's one of my chapters. You know, it seems to me like you kind of had a, a tough road to hoe with this book. On the one hand, you do a good job of showing that Islanders are connected, they're globalized, they're on Facebook, as you mentioned. And um, I I have to admit that I looked up vacationing in Tana because I'm always trying to find a place to go um, where maybe I could take my kids uh, to go and experience uh, Melanesia. But a lot of the area of PNG where I work probably would not be good for my kids. So, uh, so, um, cause it tends to not have police or hospitals or anything like that. And a lot of rascals. Um, but, uh, when you look at Tana and you go to Airbnb, there's a million Airbnbs on Tana. I mean, it's, it is amazing. So people are obviously very globally connected on the one hand, but then on the other hand, I think, uh, you know, even as you describe that, you also have to deal with the fact that they have you know, these, quote, cargo cults and uh, jump from and all of these almost stereotypically exotic kinds of uh, cultural practices. And, and in the book, I think one of the challenges you faced was trying to do justice to the fact that that both of those things were existing. Yeah. Um, on the uh, custom side, um, Tanis are proud that they've maintained their traditions. And um, even if they are in opposing political camps, political camps, sorry, um, from the John Frum people, they, they say that John Frum saved tradition. He came at the right time. Um, they could have forgotten everything. 
uh, like, and they, they compare themselves with other people in Vanuatu who they, they think is uh, deculturated. They, um, so um, they like to boost and, and, and talk up their own kind of um, uh, maintenance of, uh, of a variety of traditional systems, um, kinship systems, marriage systems, exchange systems, and it's true. Um, and, and they certainly um, are fully engaged in, in uh in local exchange relationships for their own reasons, but now there's a second reason: tourism. They could sell uh, some of the huge pig filling, pig killing feasts that they put together. They can they can uh, market them to tourists and, and make money from the from the passing tourists. Um, so they also, I mean, they're they're fairly sophisticated. So I was working a couple when I was there last, um, not this summer, but the summer before. Um, I was working with a friend to write a write a description of his bungalow, his tourist bungalow that he could upload to Airbnb or to Bookings.com. Um, so they've they've figured out you know the global tourist business and uh, and especially on the southeast side where the volcano is and where I was hanging out over the years. I mean that's the new uh, economic uh, strategy to go into the tourist business. Um, and so almost everybody is trying to make a dollar or two from visiting Australians and Americans and Japanese and Germans and any, anybody they could get there. Mm. Yeah, I guess that there's uh, as as much as there's suspicion about Airbnb here in uh, Hawaii and on the mainland, it sounds like it's a, a platform for Taniese and it's having some uh, maybe positive benefits for them. Yeah, the other thing that keeps it going is in 2008, they... Uh, the local telephone company and uh, Digicel, which is active in the Pacific and the Caribbean, they established uh, mobile phone networks. So um, you can now, you know, take bookings uh, through your mobile phone if you've got a tourist coming in. Um, and I can boost, I could be a tourist booster for Vanuatu if you're looking for a place to take your kids. Uh, <laughs> Van, there's, yeah, I mean, there's a tiny bit of uh, urban crime here and there. But Vanuatu is just a just a comfortable and, and safe and interesting and friendly um, country, um, and once you get out of Port Vila, it's it's uh, it's double that. I mean, people are always in. I mean, they haven't been. I mean, they're yes, they're tourists, but they they're not yet jaded. You know, they're not so flooded with tourists that they're just sick of them. And they're they're actually um, happy to meet um, outsiders. Uh, for you know a variety of reasons, one outsiders are bringing money to them. When I first started um, living on Tana back in 1978, people were making a little bit of money from drying coconut and selling copra, which is dried coconut meat, uh, to um, kind of the to, to to markets in Singapore and a couple in the Netherlands. But that whole copra market has just collapsed on Tana, so um, there's a bit of coffee growing, but not much. So it's really tourism and um, urban migration is what keeps people going nowadays. So they're still happy to have tourist visitors around, and they're proud of their culture, custom, and you know they're happy to uh, share it too. I guess maybe would you say that they kind of have gotten just the right level of connection? They can kind of connect to the outside world, but they're they're not swamped by Russian internet memes. They uh, have tourism, but they don't have the overwhelming kind of soul-destroying tourism that happens in some places. Maybe Vanuatu has found a good balance of of connection, but also not too much connection. So far, I mean, who knows what the future holds, but I, there are about 30,000 people on Tana, and they get about 15,000 tourists a year. So uh, it's not a huge number. Um, and... Um, um, you know, one day, if it's it's expensive, it costs a little bit of money to get there. So that's that's a, that's a, that keeps the numbers down a little bit. Uh, expensive in both time and um, money, and um, you know, Tana still there's a there's a small electric grid on on uh, the west side of the island where uh, a small town has grown up, but over on the east side um, where the volcano is. Uh, there's no electricity unless uh, your host has a, has a generator. There may or may not be running water. 
Uh, they put in water supply systems, but often they're not working. They're not running very well. Uh, so you're not going to, you're getting a, a hardier sort of tourist who um, is interested in nature, volcanoes, you know, and um, interesting cultural systems. You know, uh, I know that you've written a book in the past on cargo cults and that topic of cargo cults, which I guess is sort of one of the things that drives tourism. Uh, you know, some people would sort of look askance at that designation and, and um, sort of find it stigmatizing, a stigmatizing way to label uh, cultural innovation in, in the Pacific. But you, in this book, uh, have just a couple of pages where you sort of make a case for the the upside of cargo cults or the legitimate side of cargo cults. And I think you did in this book what you do uh, for cargo cults. You do it in many other places throughout the book. You kind of shrink an article or book that you've written down into just a, a couple of accessible pages. So so what is the what is the argument for sort of using that term cargo cult and, and sort of what is the potential upside instead of seeing it as as a bunch of sort of a crazy and, and backwards people. So there's a long story there too. Yeah, I did write an earlier book on cargo cult, the term, the label, um, where it comes from, how anthropologists adopted it, how it's been used outside of anthropology. Um, and, you know, it's not a, it's, it's not a Tana label. They never called themselves cargo cults. So it, it has been a journalistic and a, uh, a missionary and an anthropology term that's been used to uh, to um, talk about this John Fram movement, this local social movement, which is a local a, 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 a local a, a local thing, a local event. Um, and um, locally, is from the Tana point of view, sometimes you get people, oh, we're not we're not stupid enough to be cargo cultists, you know. John Fram, who was a spirit figure who came and spoke to some prophets, and his message went around the island and. Um, many people, you know, listen to the message and um, re- return to certain traditional practices. This is back in the 1940s and 1950s, and still today. Um, they weren't doing much dancing. They Most of the island had converted um, to the Presbyterian mission, and they were Scottish Presbyterians, of course, so they were fairly severe in their... In their um, and they're in their sort of Christianity. So people weren't supposed to dance anymore and they weren't supposed to drink kava anymore. Uh, they didn't like polygamy. Um, they wanted everybody to move down to the coast. Um, so one thing that uh, this spirit figure John Fromm did when he pops up in 1939, 1940, is he says, no, we need to go back to dancing. We need to go back to our home places. Um, we need to start drinking kava again. And the kava then puts them into connection with their their, their own ancestors, their, their ancestral dead, uh, which are important uh, spirit figures on Tana as throughout the Pacific, as they are throughout the Pacific. Um, so p- some people will say, no, no, we were never cargo cultists. John from came to save custom. Um, how dare you call us a cargo cultist? I mean, yeah, it makes us sound stupid. But now in the tourist era, they're selling it. So... Um, you can go on, you, you can pay money to go to the cargo cult headquarter village. Um, some of the tourist brochures will say, yes, come to Tana, see this fantastic volcano and experience the exotic cargo cultists. So people have realized that um, being a car- cargo cultist, um, in a way, uh, similar to being a cannibal, uh, might be attractive to certain kinds of tourists. So they, they, they're pushing it. Uh, and if I can keep on, keep on a little bit, I mean, that's the story from Tana. The story outside of Tana is that anthropologists anymore, in fact, I was just writing about this this morning, um, anthropologists were never completely happy with the label cargo cultist, although um, it was heavily used in the night, study in, in 1946, basically, um, up through the 60s. When um, you know, we've come up with all sorts of other labels substitute, you know, millenarian movement and nativistic movement and revitalization movements. Um, I like globalization movement. But um, it's no longer our term. Um, I've also, I've I've tried to follow um, kind of the progress of um, the label cargo cult outside of anthropology. Um, Not everybody knows, will have heard it, but if you Google cargo cult, you can find all kinds of people using it in all kinds of ways. And often it's used um, 
as an insult uh, negatively that, oh, you're just a dumb cargo cultist because you're doing something uh, that's not going to produce the result that you think. Um, because the original cargo cult story was that if if uh, people just uh, um, revived certain tradition or started up new kinds of ritual, then somebody, maybe ancestors of the American army or whoever, would uh, suddenly pop up and, uh, and uh, bring a lot of stuff and enrich people with cargo. Um, but the term has been used positively, that this is a kind of, um, uh, cargo culting is a kind of uh, search for human liberation and it's creative and and you're trying to escape, you know, um, the un some unhappy situations that colonialism or capitalism may have caused in your life. So we should respect, we should respect the cargo cultists as people who are seeking better futures. and and, uh, you know, freedom, liberty, and, uh, you know, salvation. So you sort of see it as like um, a modern movement where people sort of uh, experiment with new things and they are not bound to tradition and they, they can make stuff up in a, in a kind of sort of almost artistic way, uh, exercise their imagination and together as a group uh, generate sort of new, novel and exciting possibilities and something like that. It was certain, you know, people have, that's one take on what it meant to be a cargo cultist, either Antana or anywhere in the world where you might accuse people of being a cargo cultist. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, you can find it, as I said, if you just Google it, you'll find it being, you'll find the term being used negatively, you know, stupid cargo cultists who are deluded, but then you'll find the term sometimes being used positively as, as uh, people who are in, yeah, engaged in uh, some, honorable search um, for change and transformation. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons that that literature got so big in the 60s was that was that the counterculture in America, people were like, hey, that sounds like a great idea. So it, maybe it was it was desirable, but I think maybe it's it was a desirable pe because in part of its exoticism. Yeah, I think, you know, the the fact that it comes out of the the Pacific um, lent lent it a you know a particular attraction you know for for people. But I also previously I've I've suggested that it also speaks to American notions of desire. That in a way we're all cargo cultists. We're all looking for something better. Um, we can never stop wanting. Um, desire is infinite. Uh, we always have to go shopping. We're always seeking love. Um, so it, it kind of norm that the cargo cult story normalizes American cultural understandings of what desire is all about. But um, I suggest, anyway, I could be wrong that you know that uh, contemporary understanding of desire as unrelenting and ultimately unrequited. And if we ever could reach the end of our desire, that e our economic system would collapse. You wouldn't want anything more. A romantic system would collapse. Uh, you'd have enough love, and you wouldn't need any more. Um, I think that's maybe only one way that humans have uh, understood desire. I've, I'm no Buddhist, but um, you could look to see how um, desire is understood. You know, among certain strands of Buddhism, that uh, the the goal in life is not to not to keep on wanting more and more and more, making yourself better and better, the best you could be. But the goal of life is to stop wanting anything at all, and that will lead to happiness. So um, the cargo cult story, the way that it's been seized on and used, I think, outside of anthropology and certainly outside the Pacific, I think is, in a lot of ways, just reflects uh, what just us ordinary Americans like to think about wanting and desire um, as kind of a never, never ending, uh, inescapable uh, state. Yeah, I guess it ultimately says more about the culture and theories of human nature of the people who write about cargo cults uh, in North America than it does about people in Tana who who practice them or some version of them. Yeah, that was my argument, but um, some of my fellow anthropologists, rightly so, said, "Well, there certainly were these social movements in the." in Melanesia, and a lot of them um, talked about cargo. So um, 
I don't want to deny that the their you know their historical movements, uh, many of which were concerned with uh, the acquisition of uh, things. Um, so there have been a couple of uh, if anybody's interested, you can get into the literature. A couple of debates about you know were cargo calls real. Uh, or were they just a kind of Western misunderstanding of what people were really up to, up to? Yes, there is. I, I'm I'm familiar with that literature, and I would love to talk about it with you for some time. But I realize diving into that stuff might not be of of interest to everyone. So, but but it is it is quite interesting when you start looking at these movements as forms of cultural innovation, and maybe if you throw off that cargo cult lens, then. You just have a bigger view, and there's a there's a lot more options for understanding what's going on, than um, than just labeling. There is this thing called cargo cult, and something happens, and you just say, "Oh, that's another cargo cult." Kind of that that process of categorization might might foreclose other sort of more innovative ways of looking at what these movements are doing. So, but yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, finish that, and then I, I did want to just jump on desire there. Um, what, what I was just going to say locally on Tana, I mean, there's a debate there too that the John Frum people um, did innovate. I mean, they said, yes, we must go back to tradition and custom, but uh, John Frum had um, other things that he advised people to do. So um, the anti-John Frum folks, I mean, Tana is full of political um, groups and and um, oppos- oppositions and, 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 and conflicts. They say, ha! John Frum is not traditional. You know, if those John Frum people were traditional, they should go back to wearing penis wrappers, which was the traditional male dress. Um, so there's a there's a whole debate about about uh, where's the line between true tradition and and uh, new transformative, innovative um, ways to live. You know, you were talking about different um, theories of desire. And one of the different theories of desire that comes up in this book is these uh, Presbyterians that you mentioned. Uh, a fair amount of the book is on missionaries, um, given the fact that they're not actually from Tana, and you, and you spend a fair amount of time on them. Why did you make that decision? And, um, and in the book, you clearly seem sort of, I, I think, you seem fascinated by them, or they, they seem compelling to you. Do you tell me a little bit about the decision to make one of your people in the book, um, one of the chapters uh, about a missionary? Yeah, they, you know, the the most important outsiders who have come to Tana, nowadays as tourists, but back in the 19th century, up through really um, the 1970s, uh, were missionaries. Um, and all of those chapters, except for the Maui Tiki Tiki, the Maui Tiki one are about um, real people, you know, who lived and um the ones starting, uh, the, the, I can't remember which chapter, but the last few chapters are people that I know or I knew, uh, but the earlier ones were people that I had to kind of retrieve from from the historical record. And it really was the missionaries who um, wrote down um, a lot about what was going on in the 19th century and the early 20th century. So you turn to that literature to try to figure things out. You have to read it as an anthropologist, of course. So... Um, I was just emailing with the Summer Institute of Linguistic uh, Linguists who spent a lot of time on Tana and learned the language that um, I learned. And he was uh, taken by the fact that I have two um, Bible quotes at the beginning of that book about, uh, um, because they're about um, Samaria and the village I lived in was uh, um, renamed in 1910 after um, Samaria, you know, in, in, um, in the Holy Land, and he was wondering if I had, um, if I was taking a Christian perspective on Tana, and I had to tell him, no, I'm sorry, I'm still an anthropologist. Um, anthropologists uh, have to try to understand missionaries as this, in the same ways in which we try to understand anybody, whether they're people in Tana or people here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or whatever. So we, we to for better or worse, we apply our anthropological and you know analytics on all sorts of communities and the mission community. Uh, they were really young, many of them. Um, they came out of Scotland, they came out of Nova Scotia, they came out of, I'm trying to, later on in Australia. Um, they were just young people who were driven to, you know, move themselves into the Pacific, a, a fairly isolated and completely different place. 
Um, so as an anthropologist, it was very interesting to try to trace out what happened to them. So um, the one chapter I've got in the missionaries is a young Canadian woman named Mary Johnson Mathis' son who comes to Tana, spends two, the, two years there, and then dies. She has a small baby girl, and the baby girl dies. So it's a pretty tragic story. But her story is the same. I mean, it's connected um, directly with what's going on with the people that she's living with too. So it's not just a story of, of one young missionary woman. It's the story of her life and um, and all of the um, local town of villagers that she was trying to convert. Yeah, it's, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's part of the story of social connection and globalization. I think she might have actually originally been from Scotland or her parents were from Scotland then then they moved to Canada, and then she moved to Vanuatu. I think some people might be surprised to learn that there was movement before the end of the Cold War, like where these people were moving all over the place. Yeah, her parents were born in, in Scotland, um, but they were part of the big Scotland diaspora. Scots scattered all over the world, and, and uh, many of them ended up in Nova Scotia, New Scotland. Um, and from there, she sails off to Vanuatu. Um, yeah, the other frame of the book is global connection, at least. And that too came out of my interest that the book might be used in introductory anthropology courses, um, not just anthropology, almost everybody out there, um, tuned into, uh, uh, global structures and global forces. Um, when I was a student, um, the last chapter of any case study was social change, you know, so you would present kind of the traditional system, kinship economics, uh, religion, politics, and then there'd be a final, some final chapter or two on changing world. Um, that shifted, social change kind of got relabeled globalization. So um, I partly framed the book as, as a story of islanders in the world that people have been coming and going um, Tatana from, you know, 3,000 years ago when the original settlers show up, uh, AD 1200 when the Polynesians come back into Vanuatu, uh, but certainly from 1774 when um, Captain Cook lands lands on Tana for two weeks, basically. You know, the the it is true that there are these global connections, but this missionary period, I mean, it really, it really sounds terrible. The there's this spread of diseases and people are dying in, in huge numbers. The missionaries uh, want to insist on changes into the way of life that we've talked about that um, seem as I'm not Presbyterian, seem to me, you know, very, very um, strict and austere. And, you know, there's this, you know, people are resisting the mission. They blame the mission for the mass death that breaks out. And I think you even have a quote in the book, which is, from some missionary, which says these benighted heathens wrongly assume that, you know, uh, we bring death with Christianity, although it is true every time we arrive, a huge amount of people die just afterwards. Like it's a, it's a, it sounds like it was really dark times. Yeah. COVID-19 of, uh, of the 1840s and 1850s. Every I, time I mean, it's, it sounds like a lot more people died there than they did of COVID. I mean, this, you t- you say there's like a 90% population loss? I, probably so. I mean, nobody knows what the original population was of, of Tana. It's 30,000 people nowadays, and, you know, it will fit more people onto it. Um, but when the mission started uh, counting people, it was uh, just around 6,000. So there'd been a huge crash, and there was a huge crash all through Vanuatu. And this is the case all through the world, of course, when European germs... Uh, hit uh, the new world or hit the Pacific, uh, just people die in huge numbers. Um, you know, I live in Oklahoma. This was Indian territory. The reason they could move the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Seminole, um, and the Greeks into Oklahoma is that everybody who once lived here had died. So the places had just emptied out. Um, similarly in Vanuatu, there was a gigantic population crash. And yeah, you could read those missionary journals and they would walk into a village and everybody would be dead and there would be nobody left to bury the bodies. So they would just kind of let the houses fall down on them. Um, huge, you know, huge loss of life. Tana suffered less uh, death than the neighboring islands in Aitiam and Eromongo. 
um, but still many, many people died. And so it was originally, it was a, a European ships who had come through there looking for sandalwood, and then whalers started to appear, and then the missionaries show up in 1839 on, onwards. And yeah, you never knew what kind of flu or measles or typhus or whatever, you know, might come ashore, you know, with people on those ships. Uh, Mary Matheson, who I have a chapter about, she and her husband clearly had tuberculosis before they left Canada, um, and they brought it to Tana. I'm sure they infected people on Tana, and they both die of it, you know, within a couple of years. Yeah, and you, you quote from her journals where she regularly prays for death, I believe, before she got ill, just because she's hoping to leave this sinful world and, and go to heaven. Yeah, she was pretty gloomy. I've, I felt for her. Um, but she had hope, you know, of an afterlife. But uh, the woman was, was uh, you know, complicated, but uh, certainly depressed. Well, I think it is interesting that you include that in the book because it gives people a sense of the global connections, all kinds of global connections, biological ones, you know, uh, missionary ones. Um, and you, you get a sense of her as a person, which is interesting. And I guess maybe readers can, can make their own judgments about uh, her motives and, um, and uh, her as a person. Yeah, and I rely on the mission literature. I mean, um, she kept a journal and she wrote many letters home and they were collected by a fellow Presbyterian and, and published um, I'm sure they were edited, so we don't get the whole story. But um, and the, and the the church was using that uh, for propaganda purposes, so you could fundraise off of it for sure. Um, but if it wasn't, you know, for these missionaries, nobody else was around who you know wrote things down back in the 19th century. So there's still an important, you know, you have to take them with a grain of salt and read through what they write. But they're still the main source of information for much of the Pacific. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say one thing that I like about the book is um, how deeply researched it is, even though you, it, it doesn't bury you with erudition. You can see that you found these little nooks and crannies of historical documents from a long time ago or, you know, unpublished research papers. And just, you know, it really demonstrates, you know, that, that in the 40 years you've been studying Tana, you have not just been sitting around. I mean, Clearly, you found all of these interesting stories, and you provide readings for people at the end of each chapter, recommended readings, some of which I think no one but you will ever have a copy of, which I, <laughs> it speaks, speaks to your credit. I think it speaks to your credit. Um, yeah, well, this is a book you read at the end of your life, I think, because um, it took me 40 years to be able to write it. Uh, earlier books, uh, I think, were more focused and more anthropological, but... Um, if, if you live long enough and you kind of concentrate on a particular culture, you, you hopefully learn interesting things. Well, I don't, I don't want to dwell too much or to ask you to engage in any kind of reflection that makes you uncomfortable. But, you know, most people who write books and most of the discussion about writing books is about writing your first book, the huge literature, how to turn your dissertation into a book. You know, it, it sounds like you wrote this consciously thinking, that this was um, this might be your last book, and can can you tell me uh, if you feel comfortable a little bit about about that decision and um, how you sort of think about your career and and writing your career as you approach or enter retirement? I, I just think we don't hear very much about that from people. We don't hear about that that side of the life cycle of a scholar. It could well be my last book, at least certainly about Tana. I, although I wrote it for students, um, I kind of. Uh, loaded it up with everything I've learned over the years, uh, both uh, living on Tana. I've been back about 20 times over the last 40 years and uh, digging into whatever literature I can find. Um, I joke saying if I'm going to write another book, maybe I'll get into the ethnographic mystery genre and I'll have some um, detective from someplace and some interesting murder. Um, there have been, uh, you know, a series of anthropologists who have tried their hand at writing mysteries. Uh I don't know. I don't have a, you know, a, a next big project on the horizon. Um, I was hoping to, I, I do my Kava vacations, go back to Vanuatu and drink Kava for a month. Um, I missed the one this year thanks to COVID-19, but um, I'm hoping that uh, travel will be possible again 
um, next, uh, yeah, next year. Um, 1.2, I think is a shrinking number. There is still no uh, attested case of COVID-19 in Vanuatu. Um, they shut the borders down, so it's difficult to travel there. Um, or it might be testing. I mean, maybe they're not doing a lot of testing. But um, they have found a few cases cases in the neighboring Solomon Islands, and I'm not sure about uh, New Caledonia, but Vanuatu still no cases. Um, so uh, the plan is to go back. Um, Maybe not so much to do research on a particular topic, but to catch up with old friends mostly. Well, it's it's good to hear that you have that connection to the community. I think people always wonder about anthropologists. What is their relationship to the community? And it, it sounds like you have a deep one. You have you have a picture of you in the last chapter of the book. I mean, I should say, like, are you the last chapter of the book? Or are you one section of the of the last chapter? I'm just one section. I hesitated to stick myself in to the last chapter but since it's a book that starts the story or starts with personal stories and personal biographies i figured okay i'll say a little bit about me i think it's only two pages and i do put a picture uh, where i'm surrounded by kind of grinning tunnies friends and um, little kids and ever since i started you know anthropologists would know this they, they it's hard to deal with people if if they can't work you into their local kinship system, figure out how they might relate to you. So everybody gets a kin term. And um, even in my 20s, they call me grandpa, which was a bit unnerving. Um, but um, I think I say at the end of that book that, okay, now I'm in my my 60s. Um, I'm okay with the grandpa la- label. So um, yeah, it's, it's become easier and easier to um, stay in touch with people. Uh, we mentioned Facebook before. I used to write letters. So I'd write a letter to a friend or two um, after my first trip to Tana. Um, and then I'd wait for three months or four months, and maybe I would get a response. And then I'd write another letter, so you would have a couple of contacts a, a year. But uh, golly, I mean, there are a bit fewer than 300,000 people in Vanuatu, and maybe around 30,000 Chinese. And I don't know what the Facebook limit is, but I must have a couple of thousand Facebook friends who I've never met. Um, some of them I know, of course, but some of them are kids or grandkids of people um, I knew. Uh, some of them are just friends of friends of friends of friends. So um, in, you know, in the Digital Island chapter, I, I remark on, you know, just this incredible burst of conne- digital connections, um, which, and, and I don't know what's going to happen with that you know in people's lives but um people seem to have nothing to do except except spend time on their mobile telephones uh, uh looking at facebook uh, i guess that makes them like people everywhere these days oh, yeah i know it <laughs> well you know i've taken up a lot of your time so so uh thanks very much from that you think you're serious about doing the uh, ethnographic novel yet is that your next project uh i'm not quite yet serious um maybe maybe Cool. Well, whatever you choose to do, I know I'm going to look forward to reading it. So thanks for being on the show today. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Okay. Thank you. I appreciated it.